pray, and then we'll uh, spend some time in, in the Word this morning. So let's uh, pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so very much for your love, for your mercy, for everything that you've blessed us with. We ask that as we search your text and look at the things that are found here, that we would become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would reveal hidden sins, and that we would walk away knowing your character, knowing your will, knowing your principles. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from your word. And it's in the name of your son that we say, amen. I remember when I was a wee lad going to school, my teachers often talked about the Enlightenment as this great period of human progression. And my teachers taught me that the reason that it was a great period of human progression was because man was finally able to throw off those old dogmas and superstitions that were holding them back. And through these new principles of the Enlightenment, now man can reason for himself and act in a way that he sees fit. Now, some of that, we go, that sounds good. Some of that has had devastating consequences, not only to the world, but to the faith in general. This whole idea of you have anything, any explanation that involves the divine or any explanation that involves scripture automatically should be thrown out because we got to make sure that it's reasonable to believe something A or B. We live in a culture where this still is a prevailing view, that the enlightened people are the people that are moving away from God's word and progressing man towards personal autonomy and personal affluence. That's that's the zeitgeist of the world around us. And they would say that's what enlightenment is. that's, That's how you become enlightened. It's interesting in our text this morning in Proverbs 14 that Solomon, as he begins to deal with the government and society, in his mind, an enlightened group of people are those people who know the fear of the Lord, understand the fear of the Lord, are able to discern wisdom, have, have the word enlightened to them, right, as they're reading it, and as they act according to biblical principles, these are the enlightened people. And an enlightened society is a society that is based and built on the principles of God. And so this morning, we're going to have a vignette or a picture of an enlightened society or nation. We're going to look at what does it look like to have a wise nation, an enlightened nation. And here we're going to see the principles of that. We could split this up into two sections. The first section It's going to be found in Proverbs 14, verse 28, where we're dealing with enlightened governance. You have governance that's enlightened. Then the second section, which is from verses 29 to verse 35, deals with the enlightened populace. So this is the picture or the the vinaigrette. It's not the vinaigrette. What time is lunch? No, I'm joking. Um, The vignette the vignette of a wise society. So let's go ahead and let's look at this. Let's turn to Proverbs 14, verse 28. And notice what is said here. 
He says, in a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. So I just want you to notice here, verse 28 begins with the king's glory, right? Begins with the king. And then just skip ahead, just read to verse 35. And it says, and the king's favor is towards a servant who acts wisely. So this section, like the section that we talked about with a family before, is sandwiched between the statement of the king, right? And so everything kind of in between the sandwich kind of has a, though we've heard these things before, it kind of gives us a little bit of a new nuance to it in the sense of how a person, a wise person acts as a citizen. Also notice in verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. So it seems to me that in this section, though these principles and these proverbs could be taken individually, there seems to be a flow through these that is dealing with the society, dealing with a king, dealing with us as citizens of, of, a, of a nation. And in verse 28, he begins with, in a multitude of people is a king's glory. Now, we have to remember, as we, every single time that we touch the book of Proverbs, we have to remember that the unifying theme is the fear of the Lord. These Proverbs must always be understood with that backdrop. If you are reading the book of Proverbs and you come to a conclusion without first thinking that the fear of the Lord is good, wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, and anything positive comes from that attitude of the fear of the Lord and wisdom, you have to rework it because that is how they're meant to be interpreted, always through the lens of the fear of the Lord. So here, when he says a multitude of people is a king's glory, the insinuation is, is that the king, as he's making his policies and as he's doing his things, they are based upon this reverential fear for God and taking his words seriously and that he desires to be wise. It must come from wisdom, okay? But notice what, what the glory is, right? As, he's, as the king is, is reigning and as he's causing this governance to happen throughout the kingdom, notice that it's a multitude of people, which is the king's glory. We would say that this would be flourishing, right? It's a flourishing, vibrant. It's got lots of people. It means that his people have enough to eat. It means that he's not causing unnecessary wars or he has these incredible, incredible policies which are putting people in jail. It's, it's the idea of the, here are these people, they're flourishing and they're growing and there's lots of them. That, that's, that's, the, that's the king's glory. Here's this enlightened king. The enlightened king, go figure, makes wise policies based off of God's word. But notice this next thing. It says, and the dearth or the it's kind of an interesting word. It has the idea of, of limiting, of limitation, of causing something to cease, or limiting something, choking something so that it does cease. So, so if one, its glory is the multitude of people, then notice that the, the limiting of people is to a prince's ruin or to his dishonor. So on the one hand, here you have this wise, enlightened governance, which is a promotion of life. Promotion of life, but not just life. It would be life lived as God intended for man to live. Right? In one sense, we could say that a wise king would be someone who exemplifies the book of Proverbs, is wise in the way that he deals with all things. The other one, 
the other prince. His policies are foolishness. And since they're foolishness, what do they do? They cause people to move away from the Lord. They encourage all of those things which are downfalls and shameful to a society. Now, I'm sure that our minds are filling with lots of things. And I'm sure that you're like, yes, now Caleb is going to give it to the government. And I'm sure that I'm going to upset a lot of you because there's a lot of things that I'm going to say that you're like, mm. And some of you go, there's a lot of things he didn't say. So be it. When we think of the government and we think of wise government as here, it's always important that we think of the government biblically. And if you're thinking about the government biblically, at least in the New Testament, you have to go to Proverbs or you have to go to Romans 13, you have to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, you have to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, you have to go to Titus chapter 3. You have to look at the book of Acts. Remember when when Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin and they had the discussion before the Sanhedrin. You have to look at the statements of Jesus where Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. And we have to take all of those things into account. And, from, and if you are to read those, and I feel if you read those honestly, the sense that you get is the government that is above us is placed there by God. And God expects us to listen to them. He doesn't say for us to love them. He doesn't say we always have to agree with them. But he says he do, that we do have to obey them. Now, it is also true that there are times in which the government asks believers to renounce their faith in Jesus, to stop talking about Jesus, and to stop talking about Jesus in a way that makes him king. That's very clear. And the obvious answer is we, we have to worship Jesus. We're going to obey everything else, but we can't obey there. There's one other principle that I find really difficult. In fact, I was thinking about my son this morning, and he said, Dad, I can't wait to grow up to be like you so that I can go to the garage and talk on the phone with my friends and yell at the president. He's not wrong. So, obviously, I struggle greatly in this area. I... I love yelling at the president, uh, regardless of who the president is. I enjoy it. But there's always one text that always really convicts me because it shows me that what my flesh wants to do and what I find really enjoyable is probably not the thing that God wants. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, first of all, then I urge, and it, I, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and peace and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So it seems to me, I'm not a king, I'm not the son of a king, I'm not a senator's son or a congressman's son, my dad's not the mayor. So when it comes to wise, wise governance, and I, I don't have their ear, what is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing? Not sitting in my garage yelling at them to my friends, but praying for them. Praying for them specifically how? Well, if we couple this with Proverbs, it would be praying for them that they make wise decisions. Not decisions that benefit me per se, but decisions that are based off of God's word and the principles that are found on God's word. 
That's what we should be doing. We should be praying for our elected leaders. There's a lot more we could say. In fact, we could even use this verse as a, as a mechanism here in Proverbs 14, verse 28, to judge even our own government. And I'm sure that there's a lot that we could, I'm sure I could ask any one of you to stand up and name a policy, and you would go, well, that policy definitely goes against God, the word of God. And I think a lot of us would say, amen. But here's the point. When we are praying for our elected leaders in their governance, we should be praying that they're following the principles that are laid down in God's word. And that if they don't know the Lord, that the very first thing that he would do would be gracious and kind to them and open up their hearts so that they would see the wonderful gospel and that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their eyes to see the text and to see what is right and wrong so that their governance would be the right kind of governance. So, I think that's what we should do. I think all of us are adults here, and we realize that there has been no such thing as an enlightened government. There's never been an enlightened governance. There will be one day when Jesus sits on the throne and he reigns. But up to this point, hmm, some have been okay. Right? Some have been okay. But, here's, but here, here's, here's, what, here's what we should pray for our leaders and here's what our leaders should strive for. So, that's the governance and the leading governance. Let's move on to the next one. Let's, let's move on to uh, an enlightened populace because this is where all of us are, right? We're, we're part of this enlightened populace. So what does the population look like? We know what the government looks like, what it should look like. We know where they're at. What should the population look like? Well, notice in verse 29. In verse 29, here we see that the enlightened population or populace should have discernment. Notice what he says in verse 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. The word for understanding here is the word for discernment. He is discerning. So one who is slow to anger, meaning it takes a long time before he explodes, starts yelling, throws wrenches, smashes windows, put holes through the wall, right? Before, he, before there's an outburst of anger, it takes a long time for him to get there. It's a demonstration of great discernment of great self-control, that he understands and that he's able to think and reason and control himself and control his passions. That's a good thing, right? Imagine if the entire country did this. Just, just imagine if an entire country was just level-headed and discerning, how that would change the country, right? And they weren't quick to anger. We as believers should especially have this, right? We should not be known as people who are quick or, or sl- that, that we are quick to anger, right? That we have a quick temper, but we should be known as those who have discernment, who are able to think through situations and react in a level-headed, godly manner. But then notice the next one. It says, he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. And I don't know about yours, but my footnote says, Caleb, you do this. Uh, I don't know if your footnote has that, but this is anyone who has a quick temper like me, you know how often you do something and you go, no, why did I do that one, right? There's still a wrench I can't find after throwing it into the woods. I don't know where it is. The car didn't run. Now I don't have a wrench. That was a really smart move, wasn't it? And you sit there and go, yeah, that's what 
that's what quick temper does, right? That's what, it, it only exalts folly. It only shows rashness. It only shows uh, arrogance. It only shows self-centeredness. It only, it, it only shows all those things which are bad, all those things which are according to, God, according to the flesh. It, it, it shows a life that's not uh, able to be controlled under the Holy Spirit. It's one that's not able to think. It just reacts, and it reacts because I'm upset, because I have the right to be upset. That, that's not how we should be. We should be slow to anger. By the way, if you want to know what an example of someone who's slow to anger, if you want to see that great example, the great example of someone who's slow to anger is God himself. One of the things we've been looking at as we've been going through each of the books of the Bible is we've been looking at the sins of Israel. And numerous times people have commented to me, if I was the leader of Israel, those people would be done. They'd be done. They'd be toast. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no continual forgiveness. God was incredibly forgiving to those people over hundreds of years. That's the example. Jesus Christ, how many, how many days does he put up with us and still he loves us and forgives us? Notice, notice the next one in verse 30. It says, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. So here, notice that word, a tranquil heart. This word for a tranquil heart means contentment, means a content heart. Contentment is really, in my mind, a synonym for joy. Joy is that, that heart's... Rejoicing that heart's uh, sense of I don't need anything more, I don't need anything less. It's the heart's completeness, regardless of what's going on in circumstances. And contentment is very much like that. I don't need anything more, I don't need anything less. I have enough. I have enough. And the only way that you can get to that is through a knowledge of Jesus Christ and through a knowledge of who he is. And through this attitude that his word and he and his person are sufficient it's it's a dealing with his sufficiency i don't need anyone else other than jesus i don't need anything else other than his word he himself is sufficient for me and for everything that's it now that's a really difficult place to get to because there's a lot of temptations around us that say one more don't you you, get one more you don't have enough There's something being withheld from you. But as believers, when we understand the nature of God, his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, that he's the creator, that he's the provider, when we understand his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, when we we get a taste of that and we understand who he is from his word, then we begin to see, oh, yeah, no, he is enough. He is enough to provide for all my needs. I don't need to worry because he will give me what I need. He is enough. He is, I can be content in him. We as believers sometimes are not the most content people. But what is interesting is what this, what this proverb says. So it says a, a tranquil heart is life to the body. Almost kind of has the idea that uh, contentment has a medicinal purpose right? Like, it, it itself is healing. 
that there is probably a lot of problems that we suffer from, probably because some people are not content. Because notice what he says in the next part. But passion, and the word for passion here is zealous greed, right? So you could put in the word greed, but, but it has the idea of zealousness. It has the idea of, of hot, passionate greed, of, of, of hot, passionate jealousy, of, of wanting what someone else has. That is rottenness to the bones. The, the idea is that it withers you from the inside. It destroys your bones from the inside. That jealousy kills you on the inside. And there's a lot of things that happen, not only spiritually, but also physically, to those people who suffer from that type of greed and that level of greed. Now, just imagine for a moment that you lived in a nation where people were content. What would that look like? Imagine a nation where there was no jealousy. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? That would be an incredible place to live. Now, that's not happening. But we as believers should strive to be content, but be content in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the source of contentment. I can be content in him. Now, this next part, from verse 31 to verse 34, we could characterize as righteousness. And as you look at each one of these, each one of these deals with righteousness and righteous living. But the one that stuck out to me the most this week as I was reading through this and studying and meditating on this was actually verse 31, this next verse. Notice what it says. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. So first of all, if we take this backwards, notice that the person who is compassionate, the person who is gracious, the person who has empathy on those who are needy, are in need. When you do that and you have compassion on them and you act in a way that's compassionate and empathetic, that actually honors God. That is worship, right? God is glorified when his people are compassionate to other people and when they are compassionate to those who are in great need. That's, that's incredible to me to, to think about this, to think about helping those who are in, who are in need and how this is, this is a way that honors God. And I thought, well, why is it that when I give to the needy or I help the needy or I have compassion on the needy, why this does honor God? And for me... I would say that it really demonstrates an understanding of God and it's an understanding of man. It understands that man is, all, is made in the image of God. Just because somebody's poor doesn't mean that they're less made in the image of God or that they're less of a person. Now, they might have done something to become needy. They might have made a mistake, but who here hasn't made a mistake that has cost us financially? So, so to suggest that because they're needy that there's no reason to have compassion on them it comes from this idea of I understand who they are because they're made in the image of God. It also helps me understand the nature of God. Yesterday when we were looking at the, we're in the Gospel of John. We were in John 1.5. And we were talking about God and how God sends rain on the righteous and on the wicked. He causes them to be able to breathe on the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked, they're provided for. And that's the example Jesus says at the end in Matthew 5. 
be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's when I understand God, I act in a certain way. And when I understand God and I understand his character, then I am compassionate towards those who are in need because I understand that we're all made in the image of God and I understand that I'm going to be acting like God because that's the type of God he is. He's gracious and compassionate and that's what's right. But what else is striking about this is not so much that God is honored when we give, but the opposite. So if you notice the first part, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. Now, now this, this is serious. The word for oppression here has the idea of you are either, what it really means to, to put such a heavy hand on somebody to receive something from them, right? And it's an improper way of receiving something from them, either through intimidation or through exploitation, right? The stealing of labor, the stealing of resources, and, and, and that's the idea of oppression. They're doing something, they're not getting anything for it, and you're the one who is benefiting from it. So if someone does this, notice that not only does God not like it, but God sees it as you taunting him. You saying, I don't care about you. It's mocking him. Who are you to stop me, God? That is the level of somebody who oppresses another person. Now, I wish I could say that this has never happened in the history of the church and that people who claim to be followers of Jesus have never oppressed anyone, but that would be foolishness. The the epistle of James, you have this interesting thing that happens in James where you have this group of believers who are fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem because of a great persecution, and they go to these other communities where there's pockets of believers, and there are rich believers who employ these poor believers. And James yells at these, at these rich believers because when you read through the book, you start to realize, especially towards the end, that they are not paying their workers. These are Christians, not paying Christians. And, and the argument that James gives is, look, if you understand the gospel, you can't do this. You can't do this. This is completely opposite of the nature of God and the character of God. So this has happened. This has happened in our country's history, right? And any time that this happens, it is taunting God. Imagine a society where there was compassion, empathy. Imagine a society where they viewed people Everyone was viewed as being made in the image of God, and therefore every single person had dignity, and their life and their work should be paid correctly. Could you imagine that society? That is an enlightened society. That is what is strived for here. Now notice the next verse, in verse 32. It says, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing." So here you have somebody who's doing something that's wrong. The word for being thrust down means to be thrown down as, as a being toppled, like, like a government's being toppled. It has the idea of being thrown down uh, in disgrace. It has an idea of being judged, right? It has the idea of being conquered by someone else. So the wicked, the person who is wicked, they are thrust down not because of someone else, but because of his own wrongdoing. Notice the principle here. 
that the wicked is punished for his own sin. We should not punish other people for the sins that someone else committed, right? You should not be punished for the sins of someone else. You didn't do it. Each person is held accountable for their own actions, right? I mean, that's, that's clearly the principle here. Each person is thrown down. The wicked are thrown down because of his wrongdoing. But notice the next part. But the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Now, that's an interesting parallelism, isn't it? Here you have this idea that someone is cast down, thrown down because of their sin, because they're responsible for it. But the righteous have a refuge when they die. And you would say, well, wouldn't the righteous be rewarded on their own merit? That that should be how the parallelism closes, isn't it? The wicked are judged because of what they do. The righteous are judged based off what they do. But that's not what is said here. That's what you would expect, but that's not what's said. What's said is the one who's cast down is cast down because he done something wrong. But the righteous, now they have a refuge in every circumstance. What an incredible statement about grace. What an incredible statement about the mercy of God. What an incredible statement about the character of God. See, we as believers in the New Testament, we talk about this a lot. We talk about how everyone is destined for hell because of their own sinfulness, because of their own depravity. That's the truth. But those of us who are going to heaven are not going to heaven on the basis of our good deeds. We're going on to heaven on the basis of the deeds of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. It is Jesus Christ who imputes us with his righteousness. And so we come to Christ on the basis of faith. We trust him, his person, his work, which he's done on our behalf, trusting him alone, and we're then imputed with that righteousness which Christ has done. And it's based off of that that we then have this promise of security in the next life. That's how we function as believers. We realize that all the good that comes out of us is not because we are so good, but it's because of the work of God upon our heart and his working and changing of our heart. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of Christ. It's the work of the Father. It's the work of the Word. By the way, this is also an interesting verse in the sense that it demonstrates that the Israelites had a concept of the afterlife I know that for some of you, you go, that's kind of strange. But there are some scholars who will argue that the early Israelites did not have any concept of the afterlife or any concept that they would be rescued from death. And they say that only Christians interject that to make our religion fit to, to the Old Testament. This is one of those verses that you could point to and says, I'm not sure you're reading the same book. Because this makes it very clear that Solomon expected that the righteous, those who live by faith, will have a refuge in every circumstance, even if they are to die, they will have a refuge in the Lord. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine a whole society where their hope is on the Lord and the promises that the Lord makes and the stability that the Lord offers and not on the often contradictory, weak promises of man. 
This is one of the unique things about Christianity that makes us not fit in anywhere, is that our hope is in the Lord. It's always from the Lord. We don't trust, just because a man offers something, tries to give us hope, we go, no, our hope is in the Lord. And because our hope is in the Lord, there's a sense of contentment. There's a sense of I'm content in what he gives me. I'm content in who he is. He is sufficient and his word is sufficient. By the way, it's also probably very encouraging for anyone who has lost someone in the past year or as they think about ones who are sick. This is an incredible promise for believers that there's a refuge for even that one if they know Jesus Christ. The refuge is Jesus himself, and they will be secure regardless of what happens. Now notice verse 33. It says, wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding. So once again, here we have this idea of wisdom is inside someone's heart. This would denote righteousness. It would denote the fear of the Lord. And notice that from this wisdom, from the skillful life of of living a life that looks like Jesus Christ, from this comes the sense of discernment, knowing what is right and what is wrong. So, So naturally what flows from a wise heart and a person of wisdom is discernment. Right? You should expect to see that. <laughs> but notice, notice the next one. It says, But in the hearts of fools, it is made known. So if discernment is known by a person who has wisdom, then a person whose heart is full of foolishness only demonstrates that folly. And it's obvious that that folly is there. They don't have the discernment. They don't have the honed ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. They don't have that honed ability to determine the right course of action. And so because they don't have that ability, they're just shooting in the dark. Now notice verse 34. Still speaking about an enlightened uh, populace. Imagine if all of these were part of a society. That would be incredible. That would be an incredible society to live in. We'd all say, sign me up for that. That's Those are the types of neighbors I want. But notice this principle, and this is a profound principle. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Man, that's true, isn't it? When a a nation does what is right, according to God's word, here the principle is God honors that. Now, to the Jew who Solomon's writing to, this is definitely the case, right? There's definitely that promise to the Jews that if they were obedient to God's word, then God would bless Israel during the times of the kings. However, as a principle goes, if you think about it, if you live out scriptural principles, your policies are based off of scriptural scriptural principles, the idea is that this is the healthiest way to live, this is the best way to live, it's doing what is right, and in doing what is right, it is exalted. I don't think we've seen too many nations, in fact, I think we could say a giant goose egg for nations that have truly lived righteously. There might be moments, there might be years, maybe, 
of where a nation, even our own nation, was righteous, but to characterize it completely as righteous, I, I don't think is wise. But it's still true, right? The principles sound that if people do follow the word of God, that there is honor to that in following God's word. Now, this second part, we experience this all the time. We see this all the time, this next one. It says, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So if righteousness exalts a nation and everybody says, look at that nation that does something righteous and good, then the opposite is true as well, that sin is a disgrace to any people. Man, I think about my own sin. That ain't good. And I'm sure I brought a lot of disgrace to myself and to my family and to my nation just by my own sin. But then I think about the sins that are today acceptable in polite society and by the government. And I find no joy in that. And I don't think the Lord is happy with it. In fact, I think it's a sign of great disgrace. We're not guilty of it. Well, at least some of it. But let's be honest. This is the way it works. Sin always brings disgrace. And when a nation fully embraces sin, what comes with it is disgrace. This happens even in our life, in our family life. I don't want to say that, I don't want, I don't want to think that we're better than anyone else. But I think we understand it. Sin is bad, and sin brings shame and disgrace and destruction and chaos every time. Hmm. A lot of prayer for our country, isn't there? A lot of prayer. Because there's a lot of disgraceful things that happen. Now notice this next one in verse 35. It says, The king's favor is towards a servant who acts wisely. So even a king, even some of the worst kings, some of the most tyrannical kings, understand the value of wise people, right? They understand the value of wise people. You, you can look throughout the whole Old Testament and you can see terrible kings who kept around wise advisors because they were wise. Two of the great examples of this would probably be Joseph and Daniel. Here were wise men. God endowed them with wisdom and they were kept around by these pagan kings because they said, these guys are wise people. They are helpful to the society. So this is true. A wise servant, a servant who acts wisely, will find the favor of a king. However, his anger is towards him who acts shamefully. Well, in the verse right above us, it says that sin is the thing that causes disgrace. So we would say that his anger towards a servant who sins. Now this is exactly what Romans 13 says. This is what Paul says. Paul says that the Lord gave the government the sword. And the part of that sword was to reward that which was good and punish that which is bad. So here we see that a king is happy with wise people, obviously. And those who sin and act disgracefully... His anger is towards them. Now, I know that some of you, as you're listening to this, you go, yeah, that's all fine and good, Caleb. I'm, I'm glad that we get to see a portrait of what it's supposed to look like. But uh, 
that is nothing close to our experience. So how do we get there? How do we get a nation to be like this? Right? How do we do this? Well, hopefully you have your, your pencils ready because I'm about ready to give you the answer. Here it is. How do we get a wise nation? You can't. We can't bring this about. I wish we could, but we can't. Who can? The Lord. The Lord is the one who brings this stuff about. One day, God will reign on earth, Jesus Christ, or in the millennial kingdom. But even then, just to demonstrate how bad depravity is, that even in the golden age that starts off in the, on the right foot will end disastrously at the end of the millennium. So essentially we would say, no matter what, on this side of the eternal state on earth, there will never be this. We could strive for it, and the question is, how do we strive for it? You ready for it? We strive for it in the sense that we strive to be the ideal citizen. That's what we do. We're responsible for that. We're responsible to being slow to anger. We're responsible for being discerning. We're responsible for that. I'm afraid that many people have such a passionate and dogmatic political principles that overshadows their love for the principles of God's word and for Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that many people are more passionate about their political party than they are for the Savior that died on the cross for them. We pray for our nation, but what do I have in Washington? Nothing. I pray for an awakening for my neighbors and for my friends who don't know Jesus Christ. That's more important. I pray for a reformation of the church. That's more important. I, I, I pray that my life will be transformed by the principles of the Bible and that I'll live out the biblical faith myself. Not that I'm known for my political views, but that I'm known for my love and dedication to the Savior. So what's the challenge? I think the challenge from this text is be obedient to God. Follow God's word. Yield to the spirit. And yes, pray for the government, of course. Vote biblical principles, of course. But no person sitting in Washington will change anything. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Savior, it is the Lord who changes hearts, and it's in him who we hope. Now, he may decide to move in a great way, and he may decide to change the hearts of the people in Washington. Amen, hallelujah. But if he doesn't, our responsibility is still the same. And even if he doesn't, we still worship him and we still serve him. Because our joy and our happiness and contentment is not based off of the people in Washington, but is based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us.
And as believers, we have this incredible hope, this hope that will not go away. And regardless of what said government is going to do, our hope never wavers from Jesus Christ. May we seek to continue to honor and glorify him. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we are very thankful for you. We're very thankful for your word. We're very thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you will help us live biblically and godly. That you will help us be obedient to your word. And that we would seek to be good citizens. Good citizens. Knowing that being a good citizen means that we are honoring you. Because you have placed them in charge. We ask that you would give us discernment and wisdom on how to navigate through some of the things that you have for us in the future. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are dealing with governments and dealing with politicians who openly hate you and openly hate your word. And we pray for them, for discernment for them, as they have to navigate through some of those really difficult situations. We pray for wisdom for them. We pray for boldness. We pray for support. But ultimately, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and you've revealed your son and that our hope is found in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we love you in your son's name. Amen.